There are times when multiple people are faced with identical life-threatening situations. In the face of such trying times, some people miraculously survive, while others, unfortunately, perish. Oftentimes, the only differentiator between the two outcomes is an individual's mindset. In prepping, mindset is the first step to becoming self-sufficient. To explore cultivating a survival mindset a bit more in depth, we have invited lifelong martial artist Stephen Cage to guest host today's Prepper to Prepper podcast. Stephen Cage came by his prepper instinct honestly. Growing up on a dairy farm, tending to the livestock, and helping his family with their organic garden, Stephen didn't have to spend too much time cultivating his survival mindset. Later, at 14, he began weight training before beginning a lifelong study of martial arts. First learning judo, Stephen next moved on to kung fu, where he earned his first black belt at the age of 19. Since then, he has been practicing and teaching self-defense and multiple forms of yoga for over 50 years. He has a passion for subjects such as herbal medicine, rolfing, fasting, psychic healing, and Japanese tea ceremony. Additionally, Mr. Cage was a federally licensed gunsmith, a knife maker, and woodworker who now designs exercise, camping, and survival equipment. He studied fine art and philosophy at three colleges and universities and is presently a full-time professional artist and enrolled in the Donovan Scholar Program at the University of Kentucky. And with that, here is your Prepper to Prepper host, Stephen Cage. Welcome to Prepper to Prepper podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cage. This is where you'll find interviews with the most respected expert preppers giving you their special insights and survival advice. Go to Prepper to Prepper, that's P-R-E-P-P-E-R-T-O Prepper.com to sign up for future podcasts. Today, we are so very pleased to have Jane Austen, known to most of you as Survivor Jane, to share her unique story about her very remarkable transformation from downtown lipstick high-heel-wearing glamour Jane to homesteading, off-grid-living prepper Jane and tell us why everyone should consider the prepper lifestyle. Jane has a lot of talents. She's an author, public speaker, social media influencer, and host of Prepper Camp, the largest three-day outdoor preparedness event in the country. After a transition from clueless city girl to prepper homesteader, she created the Disaster Survival and Preparedness website, www.survivorjane.com. Be sure to check it out. And also go to backdoorprepper.com for more links to Survivor Jane and links to the Prepper to Prepper website. Permission? It's always been on educating others on how to prepare by sharing your personal experiences and research in words we'll understand on different topics of disaster, survival, and preparedness. She's written numerous books, including What Could Possibly Go Wrong with Not One, Not Two, But Three Question Marks, How to Go from Completely Clueless to Totally Prepared, and we're going to have to take a deep breath for this one. Survival Jane's Guide to Emergency Survival Hygiene, a prepper's cookbook for making personal survival hygiene products. Jane has also appeared on National Geographic Channel's hit reality TV series, 
doomsday prepper. I love that word, doomsday, just filled with evil, bad things coming at you. And has been featured in the special Newsweek edition, Off Grid, numerous magazines, and recently in the American Prime original, The Beast That Is the Global Economy with actor Cal Penn. That's not C-O-W-P-E-N. That's K-A-L-P-E-N. Had to get that straight for him, Cal. And when she's not writing, where do you guess you're going to find her? That's right. On her homestead, practicing what she preaches, she says, preparedness is a lifestyle, not a hobby. Okay. Jane, welcome to Prepper to Prepper. Wow, thank you so much. That's a, kind of an awesome opening there. Makes me sound like I'm maybe something that I'm not. I'm just uh I'm just a girl that uh, has learned things trial by fire, and I'm just throwing them out as I go. So thank you so much for inviting me to Prepper to Prepper. Well, you're so very welcome, and uh, we're so pleased to have you. And, you know, we've been talking about you for weeks, actually, and we're we're so very anxious to learn about this amazing transformation, which was initially brought about by an earth-shaking event that blasted you right out of your comfort zone and opened your eyes to a completely different perspective on your life. Please tell us about it. What I refer to it is it totally ripped me out of my happy place. I was the girl that, uh, I mean, I was totally oblivious to anything. No newspapers, no news on TV, no anything that had to do with world events unless it had to do with the sales flyer for Macy's or um, what are some of the high fluting stores that they had at that time. I don't even know if they're around anymore because my focus was on buying. You know, I am a and was a professional consumer. I mean, when in doubt, I bought. You know, if shoes went on sale, if handbags went on sale, if clothes went on sale, that's who I was. That's what my focus was. Anything that glittered, you know, I was, I was there. I worked in a uh, a large firm in uh, downtown city, a large city, and one afternoon, and I am saying afternoon, Stephen, as far as uh, 4.30 in the afternoon where the sun was still up and uh, traffic was bustling and people were going back and forth, I'm pulling out of the parking garage of my 16th floor building and see some people running down the sidewalk. Now, it was the option of going to the right or the left to uh, pull out into the main thoroughfare. And I thought, you know what? I could pull across the sidewalk and I could keep these people from catching a bus or getting to an appointment or whatever because they were running pretty fast. I thought, you know, I'm just going to hold back and let them run in front of me. Well, I was also on the phone like most girls are and just chatting away with my sister about she washed her dog and what's on sale and on and on and on, oblivious to what's going on around me until all of a sudden I hear this loud noise at my passenger door and I look over and there's a gun and this body and pounding on the door is telling me I better open up and all these explicitives and look in the back and there's another person trying to get in the back. Well, I usually didn't even lock my doors. That's how oblivious to life I was, Stephen. I didn't know what to do. 
there are people everywhere, and I'm thinking, I'm going to die, and nobody even sees that these people are trying to get in my car. All I could think to do was just sit there and blare on the horn, hoping that somebody could come and save me, because that's what we do when we're in the happy world. We want people to come and save us. So unbeknownst to me that these two people had just pistol whipped somebody at an ATM machine and had taken their money and were running to get away. Well, thankfully, somebody had called the police, and I was surrounded by police cars in a matter of minutes, which felt like, honestly, an eternity. Everything went in slow motion, and I just was waiting for the um, window to crack. Well, after that, that just totally stripped me of any security that I had. I mean, I used to go and walk down the city street and didn't, I would, it didn't bother me whatsoever. All of a sudden I became almost paranoid that somebody was watching me, somebody was following me, that somebody was out to get me. I mean, you just are, and you start being aware of all the nastiness that's actually around you. You were very lucky. And you know, as they say, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. So you were really lucky to have some help at that point. I was very fortunate. And then right about that same time, Stephen, the stock market had crashed. So my 401k that I was used to just, I mean, putting money in because I wanted to live the lifestyle when I retired as I was when I was working. So, I mean, I'm just putting the money away and putting it and putting it. And I was the type that I didn't, what do they call, balance your checkbook. I just made sure there was enough money in there all the time. I didn't have to worry about that. And so I never really looked at bank statements. I never looked at my 401k statements. I didn't look at them. And one day I just decided to say, I wonder how much I have. And I started looking and had realized, Stephen, I was losing $7,000 a month. Now, to some people, that's not a lot of money. But when I was had a mindset that I wanted to live the lifestyle that I was used to. I mean, that was a shocker. So I went into the HR person and I said, hey, I said, I need to take my money out. I need to take it out now because I'm losing too much. And they said, well, they're, we're self-insured. The only way you're going to be able to do that is to quit or die. So I'm thinking, okay, hmm, quit, die, quit, die. You know, it's yeah, like, it's uh, you know, okay. So went home to hubby and was talking about it. And at the same time as all those other two things, the housing market bubble had burst. And we were living in a beautiful gated community where you couldn't even park outside in the driveway. You had to pull the car in. All the lawns were manicured. And it was just a pristine, beautiful area. But what had happened was our neighbors couldn't afford their mortgage anymore and were renting them out to multiple families so that they could afford to pay that mortgage payment. And so all of a sudden crime started just around. There were helicopters literally at nighttime that would fly around that could light up your house. And it's like, you know what? I don't like this anymore. I, I, I don't feel comfortable. I just, I'm, I'm uneasy. Well, my husband he was a Boy Scout. He was a, a, a hunter. He was a this. Now, I mean, that for some reason, guys have got that innate preparedness mindset already. Girls don't necessarily have that. And so he goes, you know what? Maybe it's time that we 
we make a move. And we did some research. We found some property, and we literally sold just about everything that we had, sold the luxury cars, and we moved to the top of a mountain. And here I am with just my husband and me and a total upside-down world. Wow. That's great. I think so many people would like to do that. You know, it's living in the city is really a strain on your nerves a lot of times. Like you say, there's there's a lot of, from your experience, there's actually a lot of danger there. I wanted to ask you, you know, Noah, when he was telling people that a bad thing was on the way, they basically laughed at him. And uh, you've probably experienced the same thing I have when I've talked to people about uh, trying to convince people that prepping is a good thing. If you've convinced anybody that prepping is good, what what was a really powerful argument that uh, you presented that made them open their eyes? Well, to tell you the truth, I come from what I would consider non-preparedness, even though I lived in a state where, you know, there were hurricanes that came through, so you had that type of mindset, but that was more or less like uh, hurricane parties, you know? I mean, you never really looked at that it was really, really going to happen. What I had to do with that throughout the years, and especially with my sisters, I have two older sisters, and at first it was kind of like, you're doing what? And because I I don't do anything. I I don't cook. I don't sew. I I mean, I didn't cook and I didn't sew and I didn't do any domestic anything. I mean, all I did was work and shop. I mean, that was my life and that was good. I liked it. So what I've had to do, Stephen, is literally lead by example. If I had um, my sisters come and visit, I would literally make things. I would make nice dinners. I would make, in fact, as odd as it is, it happened one time their visit was on National Donut Day. Now, I don't know what that means, and maybe in another world I would have got it, but National Donut Day, well, I live an hour away from any store, and that store is Wally World, okay? So we're not talking big town here. So I decided to get up really early and make some donuts. I had them sitting out on the table, so... They came out to breakfast, and it was like, your hubby went out and bought donuts. And it's like, (laughs) no, I made these. And it's like, no, you didn't. It's like, yes, I did. And that kind of opened their eyes to, wow, you don't necessarily have to go and buy something if you know how to do it and you know how to make things. And so slowly by slowly, little by little, Um, Are they all the way on board? No, absolutely not. Again, I'm still a novelty to them. You know, my sister does this. My sister's been on that. My sister, you know, it's not, they're not really taking heed as much. So I do have to do those little prodding as far as like right now, here and now, the food situation. People are not taking it as serious as what they need to. So I I prod them on that. You might want to Pick up another thing of rice. You might want to pick up some beans. You might want to do and just kind of give those little subtle hints because, Stephen, nobody wants to be preached at. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And can you bar the doors? Please don't tell me what to do. You know, I want to figure it out myself and I want to do it myself. But 
leading by example is the best way that you can. You had to learn a lot of new skills when you uh, started prepping. Uh, I'm just interested, what was the hardest problem you encountered when you started prepping, and how did you solve it? My husband created this garden that is out of this world. In fact, I thought he was a nut when he showed me what he was going to do. And it's a permaculture garden, and it's on less than a half an acre. And it we have every berry bush. We have every fruit tree. We have every herb. I mean, it is unbelievable. Stephen, I didn't know how to boil water. I had to go online to see how long it took to boil water and how long you you actually let it boil to do something. I thought the kitchen in our home was what carried or what contained the microwave that you heat the coffee. I mean, or that it was a bypass from the regular house to get into the garage. I didn't use the kitchen at all. We always went out to eat and or either ordered something in, so we didn't use the kitchen. And I will tell you that that was huge. Not knowing how to cook, not knowing how to do things. I will I will be honest, for the first month or two, my husband lived on box macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. I mean, it was like when in doubt, macaroni, because I didn't know, I didn't know how to cook anything. I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do with all the pots and pans and utensils and stuff like that. So that, because you got to eat, that was the huge part because he would bring in the harvest of all this fruit and all of these things. And it was my job to preserve them. I didn't know what a canning jar was. I didn't know what to do, so I had to learn a whole new life from trial by fire. And I will tell you, I made some burnt sacrifices. I mean to tell you, and my husband was so kind, and he would eat it, and he would crunch through it, and he would flick things off, and he would do whatever, but he didn't burst my spirit. He always encouraged me to say, that was great. You know, with practice, you're going to, you know, you're going to get it down. And so I will have to say having a a person, a great support system that did not kick me down, but that actually would motivate me and encourage me to try. And if I didn't do it, I'll do better the next time. And and that's, that's kind of important too. You know, when you ask, how do I be an influence? I had had so many men that came up to me um, when I was out on the speaking circuit and said, my wife is not on board. How do I get her on board? And that's a tough question. There is just not one, you know, happy answer to that, except for slowly just kind of bringing out that non-good stuff as far as what, you know, our world is heading to if we don't take a hold of it. But leading by example And you have to work. I mean, preparedness is not a consumer-based thing. People try to buy themselves into preparedness, and you you can't do it. If you don't know how to use the things you're buying, um, if you don't know how to do the skills to be able to use those things, I mean, it just goes all hand in hand. It's one complete circle. Like I said earlier, this was an amazing transformation that you did, and now – uh, I think you can serve as an example for other ladies that, hey, I did it. You can do it. And, you know, as far as the consumer thing, I see that so much. It's people I know uh, believe that if they just buy one more gadget, their life will be perfect. 
and they've got so much stuff on their countertop and their kitchen that they don't they don't even use it. They don't even know how to use it, but they keep buying more and more stuff. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, when I I talk and I you know what it's like I try to encourage you not to be a consumer prepper. I love makeup, Stephen. I love it. The goats and the pigs and the ducks and the rat, they don't care, but I do. <laughs> I, I've never left my girl. I've never left that girl them. You know, I have always wanted my hair to look nice. I've always wanted to look good. I always like to paint the barn, you know, put my makeup on. I just, you know, I, I want to still, and that's what my message is. In fact, people are surprised when they see me, you know, because it's like, oh, you do that? And it's like, absolutely. Every day you will find me up to my knees in some type of animal excretion. You know, I mean, that's just me. Uh-huh. But that's my life now. Another time, you, I mean, I could see a spider web and I'd start screaming, even if it, had, if it didn't have a spider. You know, that's just what girls used to do. And so I try to say, you're not giving anything up, you're gaining. You know, you were mentioning stress in the city. The only stress I have here is stress that makes me stronger because I have to figure out how to do something, how to fix it, how to overcome it, how to get around it. That's the stress. And I'll take that stress over a time limit, a um, a deadline, a somebody breathing down your back or sitting in traffic, rush, rush, rush. I'll, I'll take this any day. Right. And, you know, it's productive stress, too, because you're doing things that are really important and not just doing things that are superficial and that don't really matter. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, going into being a prepper and a survivalist was not a big deal for me because I grew up on a farm and my mom and dad were country people and they didn't consider themselves preppers, but everything they did was oriented toward uh, self-sufficiency like uh, my mother could even make soap. She made her own clothes. Uh, she did canning. She had a beautiful organic garden. You know, you, I must say, are a rare commodity in the world today it, because what you what you were before you became a prepper is pretty much what most women are now, unfortunately. And it's sad because I see... I see women that can run circles around me in canning and sewing and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you, I know you were being kind earlier, but I'm not an expert. And anybody that says that they're expert, I kind of cringe about that because, you know what, we all have our talents. We all have our strengths. The reason I actually created my blog was because I didn't understand what half of the stuff these people were saying on their blogs. I didn't know all these acronyms that they were talking about and that you had to have this bag crammed full of consumer stuff. I didn't understand it. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't, what do you mean I have to be walking for miles? And what do you mean I have to carry this 72 pound bag? And what do you mean? I, I didn't understand it. So I started reading and then I would, I do the gospel according to Survivor Jane. I would try to tell people or share with people what these people, other people were trying to say and just try to bring it down a notch. You know, it's, you know, we, we joked about the doomsday prepper, you know, because that's reality TV and that sells. People like that doom and gloom and scary stuff. 
And that's not what preparedness is at all. In fact, I bucked that system. I, you know, Nat Geo called me every year. Please, 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 would you come on? Would you come on? It's like, absolutely not. I see what you do to these people. And some of these people were really, really, really good, um, hearted, hardworking people that the network took and just, because they didn't know any better, they they talked them into do, doing things that were absolutely just ridiculous. And they became laughingstocks instead of pillars of their community because reality TV sells and education doesn't. And that's a sad part. You know, it really is. And that's what people see. And it's like, I don't want to be one of those nuts. Well, Stephen, I don't either. Well, you know, as you said, sensationalism is what sells. Uh, and they're dealing with the uh, general public. And so... To get down to the real nitty-gritty of what being a prepper is might not be uh, as exciting to some people as they want it to be. But, you know, what I like to talk about a little bit is before you can really get into being a, a prepper, you have to have the proper mindset, and that's so important. Timothy Leary famously advocated that truth seekers should turn on, tune in, drop out, and the one should think for yourself and question authority. Does this advice have anything to do with prepper philosophy? I think it did when he said it. I think I think it did. But I think um I I think that our world is so fast paced, so technological so consumer, I mean, just think of all the things. Think about how our grandparents grew up. Think about how our parents even grew up. And think how fast we, from that point to now, we are so far advanced that people aren't even used to doing anything for themselves. They panic if they don't have their phone with them, right, you know, 24-7, if their phone isn't right by their bed so they can pick it up and see if somebody called them, you know, that's where our self-worth has come from, social media, and that's a sad part. So the quick answer is, yes, that would be great, and I definitely subscribe to that, but I don't think that it's as easy as what it could have been back when he said that, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, you know, um, a lot of the philosophy has to do with actually getting away, like you did, from consumerism and being self-sufficient. And you have to develop a strong attitude to do that. And, you know, most people are not uh, like you said, they have a hurricane party, but to actually be ready for a hurricane, they're really not. A lot of people are really worried, however. It's amazing that they don't do anything, but they still worry about catastrophes that can destroy their lives. But the difference is for preppers is they actually plan to avoid destruction, and they become warriors, not warriors. That's what I like to call it. Well, and, that's, uh, that's true. The thing about having a positive mindset is you have obstacles in the way of that, things like fear, anger, laziness. Uh, what do you think presents the biggest obstacle 
to a positive mindset that maybe that you encountered or you see other people struggling with? Giving up. Uh, giving literally up. Giving, giving up. Gi- giving up things. Giving up. Uh, oh, giving up things, yeah. Giving, 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 um, not giving up as in throwing in the towel, um, which oh. probably could come that, but when you have everything stripped away from you, it, it is it is such a shock. And only people, not that's not fair to say only, only, but people that have um, been through trial by fire, hurricanes, floods, um, tornadoes, just on and on and on, those natural disasters or personal disasters, man-made disasters, like the loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, the loss of uh, um, income, um, it, it sometimes takes that big thump on the back of your head in order for you to get it. The thumps on the head came in threes for me. You know, it was a thump with a car jacking, then it was a thump because of my 401k, and then it was a thump with the housing market. It was like, I mean, I don't think God could dump me anymore. You know, it was pretty sore back in the back of the head after that. It was like I knew I had to do something. And it takes, sadly, it takes a disaster a lot of times to open people's eyes. When they had that, they 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 had the knowledge that something bad could happen, but they had that normalcy bias of it can't happen to me. Oh, this can't happen around here. Oh, no, this would never happen to my family. Oh, no, you know, and on and on and on. When I moved to the the mountain, I was lucky that my parents weren't so far away, and they were just like your parents, Stephen. They were salt of the earth. They were doing the canning. They were doing all of this, you know, the garden and the whole bit, which was totally embarrassing for me, totally. I mean, it's like to say that your parents were farmers. You know, to say that your parents didn't live in a big mansion and have a big corporate job. No, they were they were the salt of the earth. Well, let me see. It was probably about 10 months into moving up to the mountain, and I was just kind of getting my land legs and, and learning from my mother about the garden and learning how they can and whatever. Um, they decided one day on it, uh, they were going to go into town. And that's what they call going into another place away from your home. I'm thinking, going into town, what does that mean? And it <laughs> means, you know, going to the store or whatever. City people don't understand that term, so that's what it means. Well, they were about a quarter of a mile away from their home place, and somebody ran a stop sign going 55 miles an hour, broadsided my dad's car, a door and shoved it into a telephone pole into my other. And my parents were killed instantly. That was my safety net. So all of a sudden, I'm totally ripped away from the city, totally ripped away from my job, totally away from ripped away from stores and things that I knew and were my comfort zone. Then the one safety net that I had that was going to teach me how to live this odd lifestyle were taken away so then you really had that trial by fire it's like okay now what am i going to do the blessing is that they both were killed instantly so they both went together that there was no suffering and so i i choose a positive look on that i choose that 
okay, I have to stand up and I have to do things on my own. I cannot lean on anybody. I have got to do it myself. So you have really had to become a warrior. You know, even the strongest warriors need inspiration to boost their spirits. And since you had so many things taken away from you, really, what was the a great source of inspiration that gave you encouragement when you became frustrated or overwhelmed by all these terrible life problems? Well, what I did was I'm a social person. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I love people and I love to talk to people. And I started going on way back when the, what is the dreadful social media site? And I got frustrated because I didn't know how to meet other preparedness-minded people. I'm thinking, that's what I'm going to do. I'll start learning from other people. Well, I'd go on, and I would see somebody's name is Susie Bell 229. Well, I don't know if Susie Bell 229 is, is she a preparedness-minded person? Does, is she a shopper? Is she what? So I created a hashtag called Prepper Talk. And I would start adding this to every one of my posts on the social media. And I started encouraging other people to put it on when they were talking about preparedness topics. And all of a sudden, a little bit at a time, things started gradually to where I started building a little community of preparedness-minded people. Then I got this brainy idea that I would start having what's called a, a tweet chat. In the evening times from 6 o'clock to midnight. So for two years at 6 o'clock to midnight Eastern time, I would have all these preparedness people come together and we would start talking about events and how we do things and who's having trouble with this and the newest this or whatever. And it was it was feeding my need for that social interaction. And it got to the point where it became where at midnight the West Coast would take over and people would talk through the night using this hashtag, Prepper Talk, and uh, then it became international. So we're internationally. People were sharing from other countries how they're doing things and whatever. So I will say that that was my landline. That was my safety net that became because then I was actually learning from other people and actually sharing with other people my trial by fire also. And I continued that for years and years and years till, you know, the hashtag was actually hijacked and consumers started coming in and taking it and using it. And that's usually what happens. Good things, you know, when greedy people come in and they see, hey, I'm getting a lot of eyes on this hashtag, so I'm going to go ahead and start selling products. And it started becoming a consumer mm-hmm. hashtag instead. And that's that's a sad part. But you know what? It It is what it is. Yeah. Anytime you start doing something that attracts attention, there are people who want to commercialize it. Absolutely. And, then, uh, and you know, like I have a friend who's into backpacking, and um, he likes to seek out these really remote, beautiful waterfalls that nobody knows about. So he started putting photographs of all these places on his Facebook site. And I told him, I said, man, get that stuff off of there. You don't want people to know about those places because the next time you go down there, 
you're going to be knee deep in beer cans and trash. That's the thing about it. That is so true. It is so true, Stephen. That is, and people don't really realize what they're putting out there on social media. They don't have a clue. I mean, they will put their firstborn's name, their date of birth, their social security number, their visa card number. I mean, people just, you have to remember that people are people. You don't know who's behind that name. And it is so true. If there's a dollar to be made, if there's a, 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 a something to be gained, people will seize on it. And that is so true as far as the pictures. Yeah, I mean, you could go to Yosemite Park 100 years ago, and it was beautiful. There was hardly anybody there. But now it's bumper-to-bumper traffic, you know, and yep. people are just looking at their windows. Uh, yep. That's what commercial, you know, the the government has decided, well, this is a cool place. We'll advertise it. We'll get people to come here from all over and spend money, and it'll be great. <laughs> so... You know what, you know, speaking of money, when you don't have it, you appreciate it. And when we, when we left and I cashed out my 401k one, I mean, my 401k, I just had that little penance. Then I had to pay the taxes and the penalties and on and on and on. We really didn't have two dimes to rub together. So all we had was this one sum amount and that was it. There wasn't any other income coming in. We left, and that was it. Both jobs are gone, and we had to figure out how we were going to put a home on this property, how we were going to purchase animals, how we were going to purchase equipment that we need, how we were going to do all of this stuff, and have no income coming in. And sometimes that's what it takes, and that's what most people are not willing. Oh, I wish I could do like you and your husband are doing. I really wish I could live like you. I really, you know, you can continue to wish and wish and wish because it's not mm-hmm. going to happen. You have got to be able to make a plan and follow through with that plan. We literally just kind of took a, a leap of faith, and we felt like this was the way that God wanted us to go, um, but just to kind of haphazardly jump off? No, absolutely not. I mean, we we did it the right way. We sold everything, and at least we knew that we had this amount. We had an idea of what type of a home that we could build that would take care of us. And I pined for a long, long time that I didn't have money. I I, I was used to going to the makeup counters and buying my makeup. I was used to going to the store, and, and I couldn't do that. Because every dime that we had, Stephen, had to go towards this homestead and our livelihood. There was not money for fancy little barrettes or, or a colorful pair of socks to wear my boots or whatever. There, no, that was not for years and years and years. There was no money to be able to do that. So sometimes it takes that too, learning to live within your means, which most of us do not. Well, you know, you've got something now that's more valuable than money. I'll give you an example. During the Great Depression, people were suffering a lot. But my family didn't suffer because they lived on a farm. They had enough food to eat. They had everything they really needed. And when you're in a situation like you are, even if there is an economic collapse, you don't have to worry about going to the supermarket and having an empty shelf. You've got what you need right there where you live. Absolutely. And, and Stephen, I, I always stress, 
if you could just build that preparedness foundation, if you can make sure that you and your family have food, if you can make sure that you have a good water source and maybe a redundant water source also, that you have shelter. Okay, you have a home, you know, but if that home is taken away, do you have an alternative that you can go to to at least seek safety? And I'm not talking about throwing a 72-pound bag over your shoulders and trying to hike it down the highway. I'm talking about do you have alternative shelters and then protection, whatever that protection means. Do you have an alarm system for the home? Do you have a dog? Do you have um, some type of security? You know, it it all is going to depend on you. Um, What I do, you might not be able to do. But what you do, I might not be able to. Um, Preparedness is not cookie cutter. It has to do with your lifestyle and your family situation and, and build from there. So if you can at least build some type of foundation with just those four little pillars, you've got it made. You know, it's not all about going and buying all this fancy stuff because a lot of times it's not going to work. Half the stuff you buy is going to last about a year, year and a half because it's made out of plastic crap. So, you know, that's why I stress get away from the consumerism and start billing. How much do you need for a food pantry? It used to be three, three days. Now it's moved up to three weeks and maybe it's almost three months now. I say if you don't have a year's worth of food, you're behind the eight ball. And it's not that hard to do. It's just that you're going to have to remember you're not going to have the filet mignons and you're not going to have the, the, the this or that that you're used to going out and spending top dollar for. You might have to have a garden. You know, you might have to grow your own food, and that's something you need to consider as part of your food source. Yeah, you know, most people do not have even a couple of days of extra food. You know, it's like um, food to them is uh, in a package in a building that they go to, and that's the end of it, you know. So, you know, when if there's really a, a famine, which is one of the four horses of the apocalypse that we probably will have eventually. I think um, we're moving that way. People are going to freak out. Yeah. Because we've seen what happens when there's not enough food in places like Somalia, where it's just warlords hoarding the food and the other people are in big trouble if they don't have it. And, yeah, um, and you know, they're gonna. We, I have in my mind what I think are a lot of food snobs out there. I'm, I'm not saying that in a, in a ill will. I'm just saying that there are food snobs out there that will not eat unless it has this, 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 and that. If you really realize how much is in our food sources, oh, this GMO stuff. I mean, that is a marketing ploy. Organic is a marketing ploy now. It, look at it. I mean, when you're talking about that you can get organic socks, you can get organic peanut butter, you can get organic leaves, lettuce leaves. I mean, everything is organic now. It's like, how the heck can that be organic? You know, it's just that when people see that, <laughs> they're thinking, oh, this must be good. And being in, again, that consumer mindset, I'm going to buy this over that. Because, number one, it costs more, so it must be better. It's organic, so it's got to be good. I mean, that's 
that is what our media does to people these days. They slap these these recyclable, organic, these non-GMO, these these little tags that people are just they, they gravitate to. Instead of just thinking, okay, what do I really need? You know, let me get a little. I need food for energy. I need protein. I need things that will keep me going, not a five-star restaurant meal every day. Because I I guarantee you, you're going to be happy for a cup of of rice and beans if something happens. You're going to be very, very, it's going to be the best thing you've ever tasted when you don't have. And I always try to encourage that you do have, so you're not going to have to experience that dreadful, you know, not having. Yeah, and you know what you touched on as far as the organic illusion. Uh, what is or everything's organic? I mean, everything you eat comes out of the soil to start with. But the problem is, it ended up being so processed that it loses a lot of its food value. But it is, where you, it's depleted. Absolutely, it is depleted. And now they they put out this stuff that will be insect resistance. It will be um, growth hormones and what have you. Our garden is on a half an acre, and we use no pesticides, no herbicides. No, we let nature do its its thing. We we don't. It's big enough that let the good guys and the bad guys fight it out themselves. Don't help them by putting chemicals in your, your, your soil, by spraying your, um, your growth with, with, uh, insecticide or pesticides or whatever. It's amazing that if you just let nature do its thing, instead of getting in there and trying to manipulate things, you're going to have a far better crop than what you would by getting in there. And but like I said, the soil's already depleted. So it's kind of like it needs all the help it can get. So you don't want to add to that. And even my parents, you know, the first thing they did, they got that seven powder or whatever, and they're starting to throw it all out there in their garden. And my husband's like, oh, no, 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 you don't need to do this. And it's like, oh, yeah, we do. We have to do this every year because blah, 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 blah. What they're not realizing is they're eliminating those pests that actually can come in and take out those predators that are actually destroying your garden. Yeah, I think you can. uh, I don't know if it is now, but previously uh, I was aware of places where you could buy praying mantises and ladybugs, Mm -hmm. which are great, great for predators. Yeah, absolutely. When you try to uh, throw out those uh, pesticides, you're just, you're killing everything. Plus you're killing the birds who eat the, eat the, eat the insects that have been uh, affected. But, you know, the, the great thing about having your own garden, you go out there and pick a tomato or an ear of corn and you bring it right in and, and fix it, man, that, you just can't beat it, you know. And, nobody, and just, a lot of people have never experienced it, so they don't know what a real tomato tastes like or real <laughs> cucumbers or real fruit or whatever right off of a tree. Are they right. as pretty? Are they as pretty as what you find in the store? No, not all the time. Sometimes they're kind of a little misshaped or whatever. Oh, they got a little bug bite in it. They got whatever. But 
cut it open and eat that flesh. And uh, like I said, uh, until you've experienced it, um, it's hard to describe. Exactly. Well, let's talk about uh, your retreat. You don't have uh, you don't have regular uh, tours where people can come <laughs> up there. You know retreat. what? You... Only when we were looking to do some target practice, you know, we'll invite people up. You know, <laughs> so we have moving targets instead of just ten in there. But no, we don't. But sure, you know, right. way back when when we were um, when we were on Doomsday Prepper, we actually had it took almost three months of contract negotiation before we were willing to come on because of the fact that we're not all about firearms we're not all about hoarding food and hoarding this and hoarding that and they didn't like that it's like well is there any Uh way that you could show this and is there any it's like no because we're that's not who we are we are self-sustaining people that live off the land, and that's what we're trying to teach people to do. Well, that doesn't sell. You know, that is not good TV. But finally, at the 11th hour, 11 o'clock at night, we all signed a contract, and uh, they flew out the next day. It was three days, 15 hours a day of just say your name over again. I'll say it this way. Say it that way. I mean, it was like you wanted to stab your eyeballs out with a fork at the end of the thing and you wanted to change your name because you were so sick of saying my name is survivor jane my name is survivor jane and doing this and that but they watched us like a hawk trying to trip us up trying to get us to do something that would be that moment that they needed that would be the aha moment and it was hard it was it was really really hard because you know they pull me to the side and say hey i noticed that your husband when we pulled up, he had a, a sidearm on. I said, yeah, we carry that because we have uh, 53 acres here and there are snakes. And we got to have snake shots sometime just because if you're out and about, you want to make sure that you're safe. Well, is there any way that you can talk him into putting that on while we're filming? It's like, no. Remember, we said we are not going they wanted that sinister, this man walking around with a firearm on and stuff. And we just wouldn't do that. Well, because of the fact that we we stuck to our guns, um, my husband and I, they, they did a rating, a score, and we were actually, we came in second place, which I was thrilled because the one that actually came in first place, he lived in a big mansion, seven $7 million mansion, and he had an attic full of toilet paper. And I'm thinking, you know what, that's hard to, that's hard to beat. All that toilet paper, you know, I was, you know, I don't care how good of a prepper I am. I'm not going to have that much toilet paper in my life. So after all that happened, we went on tour. They used us as their drawing. You know, these big conventions, 5,000 people come to see the monkey in the cage, Survivor Jane and her husband, you know. And it's like it was always so cold because we always walked away with, I don't think anybody learned anything there. They might have bought a lot of stuff from all the vendors that were in those big convention halls, but they didn't learn anything at all. So we said, you know, we'd like to create something that we would like to go to. And we prayed really hard about it. And um, we were able to find a campground that actually closed in the fall. Once the uh, the last Labor Day, um, once the Labor Day came around and all the, the – um, people left there was a whole beautiful campground in saluda north carolina and it's like wow this would be an awesome 
area to have a three-day event. And we wanted people to be able to come and camp and use some of the stuff that they've crammed in that 72-pound bag on their back. You know, learn how to use some of that freeze-dried food that they have in their um, pantry and learn how to use some of the tools that they had. So we created this lineup, and we had speakers that would come from all over the country that they would come in for the weekend, and we have eight classes an hour for eight hours a day and for three days, and it just this is going to be our ninth year going in that we've done it, and we sell out. In fact, we usually sell out before the event is even close to happening because we limit it to just like uh, maybe about 1,500 people is all we want because we want to make sure that people can go to whatever class that they want. They have a room to sit down. Um, they can make their own schedules. They don't have to pay any more money except for that one admission ticket for any of the classes or any of the de- demonstrations, so we don't charge any extra for that. And we called it Prepper Camp. And like I said, it's just such a good, rewarding thing to know that people are actually learning and not just buying. We do have a vendor area, but we want them to know what they're buying instead of just purchasing and then leaving. You know, that it is all about education. Do people basically come and camp out when they stay there? Well, they do as much as the campground can hold because, unfortunately, by February and March, that campground is filled up, and it's actually filtered over to the campgrounds in the surrounding areas and the bed, bed, uh, what do they call them, the, the, um, the B&Bs and the hotels and everything because it's just it's grown that much that uh, – um, People just and some people come and they uh, um, stay with friends in the surrounding areas of Saluda and so it's just kind of a a diverse group of people. I mean, when you look at them, it's like okay, what is the difference in these people and somebody that you would see at the shopping mall, at church, at a art festival? I mean, it's just people. That's how. There's not these uh, big backpack clad camo-clad, sinister-looking, I don't know what all the, you know, people have these preconceived ideas of what a a prepper is. You know, that term, again, I think that was a little overused as far as marketing, too. But we're just people. We're just people that want to learn and want to be ready for anything that, that might happen. People can probably go to your website and get more information on the Prepper Camp, right? Absolutely. Or they can go to PrepperCamp.com. I mean, we try to make it as easy as what we can, you know, so um, that right. way it's just, uh, yeah, or or my site too, absolutely. When is the next uh, session that you're going to have? Actually, it will be in September. It always is because uh, September is National Preparedness Month, and so we we like to kind of bring awareness during that month. And so it's usually after Labor Day. We haven't put it out. In fact, we'll probably be selling tickets starting at the end of November because we always people have asked, well, can you sell them early because I'd like to give them as Christmas gifts or holiday gifts. So we've started uh-huh. at the end of November selling them. And then we go on until probably about mm, a month before the event. And then if we haven't sold out, then we, we shut it down. 
so that we have time to make sure we do all the logistics and make sure everything's in, you know, in line. It, it honestly takes about a year's worth to be able to bring in new speakers and to bring in new uh, demonstrations. And uh, right, it, it's it's just great that everybody's. Uh, you know, it's almost like there have been people that have come eight years straight. And because you cannot see all of the classes, there's no way that you can see all of those classes in the three days. You you have to come back, and so we have the standard classes, and then we have new ones too. Well, I'd like to get into uh, more about your survival retreat. My homestead? Yeah. Maybe you're familiar with Mel Tappan. When I first got into survivalism in the early 70s, he was basically the voice of early the early survival movement. Yes. Because yeah. monthly column in Guns and Ammo magazine. At that time, I was a licensed gunsmith, so I I kept up with, got into his mindset about survivalism. He said that the ideal survival retreat was a small town, because kind of like the original frontier settlers, there'd be a cross section of invaluable skills like farmers, carpenters, blacksmiths, physicians, veterinarians etc., who could also come together as a trained militia to defend the village. Now, at that time, uh, nuclear war was a big subject in survivalism and something I got into, nuclear war survival skills. You know, when something like catastrophe like that happens, the cities, people are going to come out of the cities. It might not be nuclear war. It could be anything. It could be a plague. It could be a food shortage or whatever. People are going to stream out of the cities, and uh, there's going to be a, uh, they're going to be going after any secluded uh, survival retreat to take what they feel like they need. Uh, That's true. What is, your, what is your take on that? You know what I um, I'm really tossed about it to tell you the truth because it takes a long, long time to build up trust with another person to know that they will have your back because oh, human yeah. nature is, and we've always grown up, and I'm sure you have heard about this, that blood is thicker than water. You, you get a, a group of people together, and all of a sudden somebody eats more than somebody else or somebody says something to somebody mm -hmm. else's wife and whatever, and it's just within a, a matter of seconds. And there's a flare-up. And then there's, you know, this, people are, are tough. I mean, I have always joked that if I was in somebody's group, they would be looking at me as the first person they were going to eat. Because I love people and I love to talk and sometimes I just don't shut up. And it's just like, but there's, there's a seriousness to that. People will get on other people's nerves. And so just because we all have different skills and just because if you put, I like to, I like to joke around sometimes, Stephen, and say, you know, they'll say, well, what do you think about a bunker? And I said, well, let me tell you what I think about a bunker. I say on a Friday afternoon, you take your family and you all head into a big walk-in closet and you lock that door and you stay in there until Monday morning and you come out and you tell me how that went. Now, if that worked out really well, I say, yes, you are candidates for a bunker because people cannot realize or don't realize that 
we're going to get irritable. We're going to get hot. We're going to get hungry. We're going to get your touching me. I got to move around. I got to stretch. I got to, you know, it's all the creature comforts that we're used to. They're going to be taken away. Same thing is going to happen in a disaster situation too. When you're under high stress and all of a sudden somebody's telling you that you got to go cut some wood or you've got to go cook or you've got to do this and you think that you're a little tired and you want to sit down and take your shoes off and rub your feet, you know, that's going to rub somebody wrong. So I think in another world that, yes, honestly, that would have been the best scenario, a small little town with everything. But then again, you're dealing with people and you cannot set your eyes on one person. You, you cannot set your eyes on them to, and we, none of us know how we're going to react in a situation like that also. I mean, I can tell you I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to go here and I'm going to, and then all of a sudden happens and all of a sudden all of that goes out the window. So I, I am, when I say I'm tossed, you've got to be able to have a strong network of people that you know have got your back and we we have people like that and it's taken years and years to be able to develop to where you know in fact we would go out and do drills on our land we'd go out and we'd actually take live firearms out to do things and i was buddied up with an ex-police officer i felt very comfortable very comfortable because i knew he would have my back so we're quietly working in teams, going around, you know, learning how to walk through the woods quietly. And um, even though it was fun and no stress, it was we were taking it serious. And then all of a sudden, I hear this thud behind me, and I hear what I thought was a girl behind me screaming, Ah! Ah! Get it off me! Get it off! Here, this ex-police officer that I felt secure about had dropped his firearm live firearm and was trying to get a bee away from him and I'm thinking oh dear you know that was that blink moment that I'm saying okay maybe he doesn't got my back because everybody turned around like what because we're supposed to be quiet and creeping through the woods and what have you that was just I guess he's afraid of bees now to me I think it'd take a bad guy over a bee, you know? I mean, it's like one of these, it's like, and those right. are those blink moments. That was a human, it's just a little story, but it's just, okay, maybe this guy in a stressful situation wouldn't be what I was looking for. I don't know, you know, but it's just those blink moments where people will react to different things. Of course, he was embarrassed and felt silly and everything else, but it was just that's what his body told him to do at the time. So relying on people, no, absolutely not. I am determined that I have to take care of myself and back my husband up. He's got to take care of himself. He's got to back me up. Then it just filters down to that strong network of people that we do have. Yeah, you definitely touched on something that's true. It's really hard to find people who are going to have your back. A lot of people have what they call friends, but when uh, something really stressful happens, they'll turn around and there's nobody there. Correct. Uh, You know, I've always been a big advocate of Second Amendment rights, but here's the problem that most people don't realize is there 
focus on the last part of the Second Amendment, which is your right to keep and bear arms. So they buy guns, maybe lots of guns, but they forget about the first part. A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. And how many people are really in a group like you were talking about who train together for a survival situation? You know, if you're just sitting there in your house with nothing but an AR-15 and the SWAT team comes and says, uh, excuse me, sir, we're going to have to have that gun, what can you do? You know, right. the first shot of the Revolutionary War at Lexington and Concord was when the government troops came to confiscate powder from the Patriots, and they were met by a militia group. Now, if there's just been one guy out there with a gun, the powder would have been confiscated. But at that time, militias were a big deal. And the reason they were a big deal, my great-great-grandfather, five times removed, was a militia leader in southwestern Virginia. Militias came together naturally in remote settlements on the frontier at that time of America, basically to fight hostile Indians. And there were also, of course, marauders and uh, bandits that took advantage of people who were in isolated situations. But people just naturally came together to provide security for each other. And that was the basis of the militia. Most people are not doing that. You know, they're, Most people don't know their history, Stephen. Um, most people don't know their history, and therefore you couple the lack of knowledge and you couple it with today's world, you're, you're finding the militias are the people that actually understood and have actually gone out and fought for the freedoms of our country and have actually laid, they've laid themselves out there in order to protect our freedoms. And that mindset is not there anymore. Look at the, the look at how we treat our veterans now. Look at how we, you know, that's that's the problem. Militia these days does not mean the same as what we grew up with, and that's the sad part. Militias now is a dark, it's a dirty, it's a oh, you can just keep on adding words to it. It's you know, it's not what our forefathers were actually meaning for it to be you know when you hear militia oh that means that this is these guys with a bunch of guns that wanted to just go and shoot up something no absolutely not absolutely not in fact if they didn't have to pull a firearm they wouldn't i mean that's a real militia you know you you know why you're pulling that firearm out that's the way the media likes to, the lame what i call the lamestream media likes to portray yeah. militias in a negative sense because militias Actually, the government actually does not like civilian militias. And actually, most every state has a provision for the governor to call up civilians as a last line of defense for the defense of the state. And, you know, the media portrays militias as people who are against the government. But actually, it's it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, they can be against the government if the government becomes corrupt because the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence give us an absolute right to replace a government that becomes corrupt. But also, the positive side is that the militia can actually 
help in situations where there are catastrophes. I'll give you a, a good example. Like this summer, there were a lot of riots in cities where uh, large parts of the city were actually being burned by rioters. They were looting. And it got to the point where the governor called out the National Guard. Well, by the time the National Guard got there, after they had to report to an armory in a remote city, draw their arms, get transportation, by the time they got there, it was all over. Mm-hmm. If there had been actually a civilian militia there in those cities, it could have been there in a matter of minutes to stop that. Yep. So uh, the government itself has been really detrimental for militias, uh, the positive part of militias. You really have to ignore all these negative things that you hear in the media because uh, I know a lot of people who are in militia groups and they're actually sure not to advertise that they are because the the groups that actually you hear about who uh, are doing bad things are, like you said, they're not the real, real militias. That's true. Getting back to uh, locations for survival retreats, uh, one of the seminal books was a 1980s survival guide called Life After Doomsday. There's that word again. <laughs> and it was, it was a powerful beacon of the initial survival movement, which prompted really a large influx of survival retreats in communities in the Northwest, like Oregon, Idaho, mm-hmm. Northern California. Right. Because uh, he was a PhD and he did a lot of study on the effects of nuclear war. And his study indicated that in ground blasts of hardened targets, of course, cities get air blasts to destroy the maximum area so you don't have nearly as much fallout would blow millions of tons of radioactive dirt in the atmosphere where it would be carried by the jet stream, which always blows west to east. So do you think this is a concern for having a eastern U.S. survival retreat? What's your take on that? Um, when you're talking about survival retreat, are you talking about a retreat as in homestead? Because to me, retreat uh, screams of multiple families um where i'm not a multiple family i'm you know we are who we are yeah. it's a, a homestead but well, whichever one it is you know what i i honestly you prepare for one you prepare for all is uh-huh. my mindset you know to get caught up in what can happen over here well yes for everything that can happen there there might be twofold that can happen over here i don't think that there's until we get to heaven there's not a perfect place down here you know i mean that's just the way i look at it and so for you to be they always used to say gene what what are you preparing for and i used to cringe and hate that because i'm preparing to survive you know whatever it is it's just a yeah, but is it an EMP? Is it is it uh, going to be uh, this? Is it going to be the dwarf planet coming and crashing into you? You know, most of those things, none of us are going to actually be around to tell about it, so it doesn't really matter. So to get caught up in too much of that stuff, we really need to bring it down to maybe what's happening here and now, which we were talking a little bit about the government. We're talking a little bit about the food supply chain. We're talking about 
things that can happen in our own backyard, in our own region, that's what you really need to focus on because some of this bigger stuff, Stephen, it doesn't matter. You know, it just doesn't matter. We're probably not going to be able to survive it just because I don't care how many preps you have or how much you have. Um, and heaven forbid you're the lone survivor, you know. I mean, who wants to be, you know, the the last man standing? It's right. like, take me now, God, you know, because I, I, what kind of a life is that too? So I know that kind of was a long-winded, but I try not to get into you know, the woulda, coulda, shouldas, and focus more on what's actually happening in your neighborhood, in your city, in your town, in your state, in your region. Um, you know, what could happen in those areas that you can actually do something about? Some of it is going to be so big that it doesn't matter. Finances have a lot to do with it. You know, right now there's an indication that uh, really rich people like millionaires and billionaires are buying islands as survival retreats. Of course, I am a billionaire and I've bought an island. No. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. You're yeah. the first person that I know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, for most of us, like what you're saying is true. We just have to do, prepare for what we can. You know, it's interesting. You know, most people don't want to think about nuclear war because it used to be a big deal when I was a kid growing yeah. up in the 1950s. People were buying fallout shelters, uh, building them in their basement. They had us doing drills in school where we'd get under the desk. Like, that would really help, you know. Right. But, you know what? What's going to happen to your fanny then that's sticking out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, but, you know, the... The media and the government right now does not uh, emphasize the fact that we could have a nuclear war, but the Cold War is not over. You know, no, it's not. There's 2,000, approximately 2,000 Russian warheads aimed at this country. You know, they've had arms reduction treaties, but that's kind of an illusion because before the accuracy wasn't that good, so they had to shoot a lot of stuff. Now the accuracy is so good, they could probably put one right through your bedroom window if they wanted to. So they don't need as many. But you think about 2,000 warheads, and each one of those warheads can destroy, totally destroy a city. Like um, Hiroshima was destroyed by a warhead that was approximately 13,000 tons of TNT. Now the warheads are around a half a million tons of TNT. If the Cold War is over, why why are they still pointing out? Why are we still mm-hmm. pointing out at each other? You know, and now That's the Chinese are jump, now the Chinese are jumping into it. They're starting their nuclear armament in a big a big way. They're de- developing uh, missiles, developing more warheads. So that is still a concern. You know, it is absolutely to- it is concern, but it's too big. It, that is just too, too big to be able to prepare for. It's like, I, you know, where do you even start with that? And that's what can stress people out, you know, and that's why I have to really just remind them, you need to focus at home. What can you yeah. do to take care of yourself that if you had to hunker down for three months, for six months, for a year without any electricity, without any running water, without any um, whatever it is, um, com- creature comforts, 
could you do it? Could you just lay low and try to take care of your family and not bring attention to yourself? That is a bigger, that would be more of a, a bigger focus than something that's so big that I don't think any of us could actually literally prepare for. Well, you might want to check out a book called Nuclear War Survival Skills by Dr. William Teller. It's notorious for being the father of the hydrogen bomb. I don't know if anybody really wants to make a claim like that, but he <laughs> yeah. does. And um, he was actually the uh, character that Dr. Strangelove was based on. Oh, wow. Uh, and he actually advocated uh, that the most intelligent people should be gathered and put into a bomb-proof bunker somewhere under a mountain somewhere to survive the nuclear holocaust. Well, but, unfortunately, uh, I think the government's got that covered. <laughs> yes, <laughs> For I their do. people. <laughs> yes, I do. And, um, you know, as far as being survivalist, the biggest, greatest survivalist is the U.S. military. They train for every contingency. So that's a model that you might use if you want to start a militia group. One of the things that um, I think that you're on the right track with is you're definitely in a good position because you got out of the city. You know, during the Black Plague, the, the terrible Black Plague that killed millions of people in Europe, it actually only killed people in the cities. The people that lived on country estates weren't affected at all. So I think the same thing holds true. If there's any way, people, you can get out of the city, try to do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, even when this pandemic came about, we were sitting on the swing overlooking the mountains and beautiful day. And it's like I looked over at my husband and I said, you know, in the middle of a, a pandemic, don't you? I mean, it didn't <laughs> right. affect us. It didn't have, it had no bearing on us whatsoever. We had everything that we needed. We didn't have to go around anybody. And that's what I try to strive to teach people is that it's, it's not when you hear something's going to happen, run out and buy everything. No, if you already have it, it, it just smooth sailing. You don't even have to deal with it. You don't have to worry about it because it's not going to affect you as much as it is somebody that is sitting right smack in the middle of it. Yeah, and in talking to a lot of preppers and survivalists, I think the attitude is almost universal that they don't really trust the government to take care of them when something comes down, when things it's go bad. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. It's a sad Sad mindset, but well, just think of first responders in a small disaster or a big disaster like Katrina. I mean, that was so overwhelming for everybody, for the people that were involved, for the first responders trying to get in. They're being shot at. There, there's looters. There, I mean, anything and everything that could come together in a perfect storm did in that situation. How do you prepare for something like that? You, you know, you can't come and save me, come and save me. When you're told to get out, and I, that's the one thing I will tell my sisters, okay, it's two weeks out, but a hurricane is coming. It's forecasted to come your way. You need to start planning right now. If you do need to leave, you need to leave a day in advance, two days in advance, and get out 
before everybody panics and starts trying to bottleneck and get out at the same time. You, you have to keep your eyes open to what's happening around you. Well, you know, the government itself was big into civil, what they call civil defense. They had, when there was a nuclear war threat, when they had SAC, uh, strategic bombers in the air at all times uh, to counter any kind of uh, threat from Russia. They had uh, fallout shelters, and you saw the signs going into, like, basements in your big cities. But now civil defense is almost non-existent. In fact, the civil defense plan presently for the for the cities is that everyone will get in their car if there's a threat and drive out of the city. You know how crazy that would be? Oh, I just look at how we drive out of a baseball or, or a football game, how crazy it is. And that's I a happy, happy, joy, joy yeah. time. I mean, our team just won. We're in a good mood. Then all of a sudden we get in our car and all of a sudden it becomes a, um, I don't know how much a car weighs, but a 4,000 ton or whatever, I don't know, vehicle. It becomes a weapon where you're trying to get in and he pulled in front of yeah. you and now we want to cut you off and, you know, and this was a good, fun time that you just had two hours before. I mean, uh, a couple of minutes before for two hours, and then all of a sudden then you, you become these maniacs on the road. Now, like you said, put a disaster in that, and then it's total it's chaos. Thousands of people trying to drive at the same time, you know. Right. And yesterday in the rush hour, it took me two hours just to get across town. Stop and go, stop and go, yep. and there was nothing yep. happening. There was no disaster. But, you know, yep. the Russian... And that's just everyday stuff, yeah. The Russian plan for civil defense is that if there's a threat, everybody will walk out of their houses and walk out of town. Now, that does make some sense. Well, at least you can move around that way. I mean, you don't have this big vehicle. Uh, another thing, there's no gas. You know, and people are coming on on the exits. I mean, they're coming on, coming on. When people think, oh, I'm just going to go on the interstate and go. No, you're not, because as people are exiting on, it's like bottleneck, bottleneck. That's why I say to my sisters, if you need to get out of town, you need to get out of town two days in advance because you're not going to be able to do it when the issue happens. At the 11th hour, everybody is going to be trying to get out of town, and uh, it's it's not going to work for you. Well, I'd like to uh, just ask you a question about prepper skills. We talked a lot about them. Um, is there like one special skill that you think every prepper should have? I mean, like some people are good at certain things, like some people can sew really good. Some people are great gardeners. But is there one basic skill that every prepper should master? Being aware of their surroundings. I mean, honestly, it's that. We call it in the prepper field and military or whatever, it's situational awareness. You need to know what's going around, on around you, whether you're at the grocery store, whether you're sitting in a line um, in traffic. If you are um, wherever you are, you need to be aware of what's going on. I, I used to stand if I went to the grocery store I would stand and I would listen to what people were saying in back of me and in front of me. I would look and and see who's over there, who's doing this. Look at your exits. People don't do that, and that is honestly a, a skill that has got to be developed because you're in 
oh, you're in a hurry, I got to get home and fix dinner, or I got to go pick up the kids, or I got to go to this appointment, or I got to, it's a rush, rush, rush world. And we forget, even sitting in a parking lot, checking the messages of our phone, somebody can come up to you instantly with a gun and take your life, take your vehicle, um, and, and it's over that fast. But by listening and watch, watching and being aware, does that have to do with actual hand skills? No, it doesn't. Does it have to do with tool skills? No, it doesn't. But it is a strengthening of the mind. And it could be, Stephen, that you are your weapon. You are. You are what's going to protect you. And the biggest skill that you can have is learning how to be aware of your surroundings. You know, I agree 100%. And that's one thing I touched on in one of the articles I wrote for the Prepper to Prepper uh, newsletter. You're so right that people are so distracted. You know, I mean, people are driving. They're talking on their cell phone. Uh, The kids are wrestling in the back seat their slushy starts to tip over and they grab and for a second they lose concentration and bam they're yep. right in the trunk of the car that's stalled you know yep it's like there's so many bad situations you can avoid just by being aware like mm-hmm. you're walking off the street by yourself and it's late at night there's nobody around that can help you whoops you've made a bad mistake mm-hmm. you know you should you should try to try to foresee situations and kind of maybe look through the bad guys eyes what they're looking for vulnerabilities that they're looking for and, and it's hard i will tell you it is hard because we are conditioned to be distracted that's what our world is all about it is a total distraction and it's hard to be quiet and look and listen and and look far and wide and look up close and look near and it, it it's one of these skills that takes a lot of time i don't know that anybody could totally perfect it but you should be able to know pretty much so what the person in back of you is saying or what the person in front is saying to the cashier, looking at what they buy, looking at how they're dressed, looking at it. I mean, it, it is a total skill that has to be worked on all the time to keep yourself as safe as you can. And, you know, uh, one thing I mentioned in the article I wrote, that the biggest threat to self-awareness is thinking. And you're thinking, thinking, well, hey, this high-powered brain that I have solved so many difficult problems, how can that be a problem? Well, the problem is, if you, like you say, when you're at the cashier and you're thinking about, well, let's see, I, I've got to get home and uh, get that meal together for the kids. And uh, what was that present I wanted to buy for my You're actually in two places at the same time. If you're not more, yes. If not more, absolutely, yep. Then you're in this virtual reality. And when you have two realities, both of them suffer. You can't yep. concentrate. Your concentration is not fully into the reality that you're actually in. And Absolutely. So what you're talking what, about is the meditation that you have to really practice to quit thinking. And, you know, it's uh, you get into Zen and a lot of other kinds of meditation. That's what you're trying to do. Turn that damn mind off for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, 
You know, when we first moved to the mountain, my husband would stand out and he would look out. And he'd just stand there, what I thought was hours, just looking out and watching. And I was like, what are you doing? Now, this is a city girl asking somebody that's actually observing. And he said, I'm, I'm observing. And I said, what? He goes, the wind, the sun, the animals, the slope of the land. The, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm observing. I'm seeing what's happening. And I thought, that's stupid. That's boring. You know, that, but now when I look back on it, it's like that aha moment. I get it now. I understand I understand how important the wind factor was to building the house. I understand the slope factor of building the garden. I understand the sun coming up and and down where we're putting the where we place the beehives. You know, I, all of that has to do with observing. You can't just come in and say, "Okay, I want to put the house here and I want to do this and this and that." Maybe that's not conducive to the best for whatever it was you wanted to achieve, which is the house. Maybe uh, we have a southern exposure because we have a, a passive solar home. We need that southern exposure to come in and warm the house up. We need to have um, the, the sun, like I said, for the bees and for the garden and whatever. You have to learn to observe your surroundings. And, and it's hard. It really is it, it's a huge skill. And, you know, uh... To me, the the masters of situational awareness are my little buddies, my little cats. Oh, gosh, yeah. They are constantly in the moment, and they're constantly monitoring their surroundings for sounds and smells. You know, if we could ever get to that point, we'd be doing good. Mm -hmm. Um, Problem is I talk too much, and it gets in the way. (laughs) Cats <laughs> don't let talk that you. much and, But the animals, the same thing We have uh, over a hundred and some Animals here And, you know, we have the, the goats Out grazing and all of a sudden They'll just stop And their ears just go to wherever um, mm. The chickens, same thing I mean, they'll look up You know, when they make that odd noise They sense some type of predators Where we're oblivious to what's going on But they have got such a keen sense that if if you can find it in yourself to just be quiet and listen and watch yeah. you probably could get pretty close to uh to that sense that they have well you know we have to do the best we can because our ears are pretty pitiful they don't yep. rotate and uh, they're not on the top of our heads for the best place for them well, let me ask you what prepper work or activity do you really enjoy the most? I have a a magnificent greenhouse and I love seeding and I love propagating and I love growing. I don't like picking. I don't like preserving. I don't (laughs) like all the other. I don't like planting, but I love to watch things grow and I like to nurture them and I like to, the first year that we moved in and my husband said, okay, we need to go ahead and start the seedlings. And I just loved the little pots and I had little popsicle sticks with everything. I, I planted, no, I didn't plant. I seeded 400 seedlings 
And it was magnificent. Every one of the little pots had their own popsicle stick of what it was. And they would, I just watched how they started just breaking out of the soil and then they would grow to this big and this. So I did that. I tried to do it at least uh, four to six weeks before the growing season uh, or the planting season. And it was just, just awesome. And it was, I was so excited and my husband said, "Okay, now we gotta, now we gotta put them in the ground." I I never realized how hard putting 400 seedlings, and we don't do it in a row. We don't plant like that. We plant a tomato over here and a tomato over there and a cucumber here, and I mean we have it all spread out so that if a predator does come eat one plant, he's not going to get them all. And um, uh-huh. so that's just the way we do it. And I'll tell you what, I was grumbling and kicking and throwing. And it was like, I thought, I am not doing that again. And then when harvest time came and 400 plants came through and there's only two of us and I had to preserve it, was not a happy camper. But put me in that uh-huh. greenhouse where it's nice and beautiful and bright and the green, the vivid greens, I, I love doing that. Well, that's where your perfect community <laughs> comes in, right? <laughs> it's not somebody that really likes canning. Uh, oh, I hate uh, it. I, I, I mean, my husband will bring up three and four or five gallons of buckets of food during oh, harvest man. time every day, and it's like I, I stop it. I mean, I've got the the water bath canner and the pressure canner and the dehydrator, and it's just like. Oh, I can't do it anymore. I hate this stuff. And anybody that likes to can is a liar. And I'm, I mean, I just, I'm a whiner, whiner, whiner. And my husband just chuckles because he knows, you know, I got to do what I got to do. You got to do it. It doesn't matter. We like to eat. Yeah. Well, you know, it seems that you, from watching the video of, of you, um, that you and your husband are definitely on the same page what you need to do as preppers and you all really work as a team you know of any avenues that preppers can use to connect with those of similar interest now you did mention you had actually a uh, a site where preppers could come together and talk Uh, right now what is going on in that regard well there's actually um a prepper net and it, it actually is nationwide where they actually they have um, um, like small local chapters, if you will. And that might be something that you might want to uh, suggest your your um, um, followers and um, audience look into. And that's called PrepperNet. And that's just, uh, like I said, they have little areas so that they can meet in a localized area and uh, learn different things. Um, I'm always leery, Stephen, of actually suggesting anything because the best way is to find like-minded people by way of um, doing community events. I mean, you're going you're gonna to be, if they've got uh, gardening things, you're, you're going to know if they're preparedness-minded just the way they talk. You know, but you you got to get to know people before you jump down their throats. Oh, you're a prepper too, because that freaks people out. You know, they were trying to keep mm-hmm. keep low, and all of a sudden it's just like, oh yeah, we want to. You know, you, you gotta don't put all your cards on the table right at all all at once. Don't do that. 
Do not do that. People are not your friends. They, you've got to build that trust up. You've got to learn to get to know each other. And just because they're acquaintance does not mean that they're going to have your back. It, it takes years and years of, of grooming and working towards different projects to see. Do, do we, I always say do, do skills, do these um, test run things where you go out and you get a group of people that you think that you might want to, to build a foundation on and have a cookout. Or have a sleepover in, in hammocks out in the outside where you can't go in. You can't use any running water. You can't see how they react. If they stress out during a weekend where you know that life is just around the corner, they're not going to be who you're looking for. You've got to be able to be in stressful situations to see how people are going to react or respond. Boy, that is good advice. Um you know, you're so right. People a lot of times are, uh, they, they're really generous type people and they're really open to trying to help people. But then the people out there that want to take advantage of those kind of people. They, uh, and they will. They absolutely will. I mean, I can say to somebody, oh, yes, I have a, a whole storage room full of blank. And then all of a sudden something happens, and that friend tells her husband, well, you know, Jane said that she's got a whole storage full of stuff. Well, he's going to get his buddies, his militia, that not the good kind, and they're going to come and pay you a visit. You know, so you have got to be cautious about what you say to somebody because you're actually sharing what you don't want them to know. So you got to be cautious about that. I tell people at prepper camp. Stephen, it's such a, a happy, happy, joy, joy place. Everybody's in a good mood, and they're learning things, and they're, they're meeting people. And I have stood there and overheard people share, oh, yes, I live in Wyoming. I live in this side of town, and we have this, and we have that, and we do this. And, we ha-. and I'm thinking, shut up. You, know, <laughs> you, you don't know these people. Just because they're at the same event as you does not mean – that you need to tell everything that you have, you know, you come and learn and learn how to share just enough that you're being cordial, but you do not, because you are a preparedness minded, you're a prepper, you're a survivalist, you're a bushcrafter, you're a whatever it is, you does not mean that everybody that has that label is your friend because it's not true. They are a person and human and nature is going to be when the the tough times come, they're going to seek out the, the path of least resistance to get what they need to take care of themselves and their family. You're exactly right. And, you know, people, when there's plenty of food to go around and there's plenty of money, uh, people are real nice. But when those services run out, the animal inside of them is going to come out and it's going to be a fight for survival. And you know what they say? It's not who's in a fight for survival. It's not who's right. It's who's left. And, um, I've seen, I've seen, you know, that transformation from a nice, quiet, uh, person to a ravaging animal when things get sparse. And, um, 
When you when you're pushed ready? in a corner, it's amazing what that ugly side can come out. And everybody has it. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care exactly. how sweet you are, how giving you are. Everybody has some type of a, a ugly side that will come out when it's their survival versus somebody else's. Yeah. You see your kids starving, and you know mm-hmm. Mr. Jones got plenty of food. You might go asking to have some, but if he tells you you can't, then you're more than likely going to go to the next step, which is to go ahead and just take the food that you need. And uh, that's just basic human nature. That's human nature. Well, is there are there any other gems of wisdom you'd like to leave with our listeners before we uh, conclude? You know, Stephen, my war cry would be stop being a consumer, slow it down, start thinking about what's actually happening in our country and what is happening right now. Open your eyes to what is going on and start building that foundation. Start small. Don't think about going. I mean, if you're going to the grocery store and you see that there's a couple cans of soup on sale, go ahead and buy it. Go ahead and buy it now while you can because it could be in the next two to three months, even into next year, we're not going to be able to get that soup. And soup will be very, very good versus just a cup of water. You know, you have to think of small things. And I'm I'm afraid that we've got some issues with the foods because of the container ships sitting out there on the coast of California. I'm concerned that we're going to have some issues with China. I'm concerned about this. And Stop buying things and replacing them with skills. Start put building a foundation of your water and your food. You've got your um, shelter, hopefully, but have a, a destination planned. And make sure that you have some type of protection for you and your family. Um, people say, well, gee, I'm afraid of guns. Okay, then do not get a gun. Please do not get a gun because if you are not determined that you're going to use it, you're not determined that you're not going to be a victim, then I say pass that one over. Get a dog. Get a get a stick. Get a whatever. But you have to be determined with whatever it is that your is your protection that you can use it, just like whatever your food, your water, or what have you, that you are going to use it. But pull back on the consumerism to buy yourself into preparedness and start working from the ground building up that foundation. Well, I think that's I think that's great advice, you know, because so many people don't really have the financial stability to maybe move out of the city and get a nice survival retreat. So, but there's still so many things they can do. Absolutely, you know, they, can be, they can be ready for the food and be ready with the water, and be ready with the self protection. My great 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 grandfather, back in the 1700s, lived in the frontier of America. There was no uh, hesitation about having skill with firearms. Everybody had to have it. It was sure, just even the youngest. The youngest to the you know you you t- you were taught young, and that was just a, a way of life. Absolutely. And his his wife was well known for being the, one of the best shots in the territory. And she That's had how to be I keep my husband in line. Because <laughs> I'm the better shot. 
There you go. And, you know, when, when he's away, when you, it's up to you to protect the homestead. You know. Absolutely. Yes, that's right. You know, I've usually been able to convince people who are even like uh, hardcore liberals about guns. Uh, you know, I've never been around a gun that they should definitely think about it because I just asked them the question: uh, If somebody broke into your home and wanted to kill your wife? molest your kids, would you try to stop them? And, of course, their answer is yes, of course. And I said, well, once you make that decision, you have a you have a responsibility and onus upon you to be successful. You can't just yell at them and go, hey, stop that. That's not mm-hmm. right. Don't you? you can't just shoot them with a BB gun and say, well, I tried to stop them, you know, you got to really, at the end of the day, say, hey, I did what was necessary, and I had the means to do it. And if you can't say that, then uh, you're going to be living with a, a really bad feeling the rest of your life that you let your family down. Once I lay That's that so on true. them, mm-hmm. pretty soon they're trying to join the NRA. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So anyway, so anyway uh, man, it's... Jane, it's really been great talking with you, and we have You know what? Covered some- I am so excited for this podcast. I am so excited for the Prepper to Prepper team. Everybody was just great and so welcoming, um, inviting me on the show. I'd be more than happy in the future if there's a topic that you'd like to talk about that it could be more women-specific. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm here. Uh, like I said, I don't, I don't like to throw that expert out because uh, when the – as I say, the poo hits the sand, that's going to go out the window, and it's going to be survival of the fittest. So that expert stuff just goes down the drain after that. If anybody wants to get a hold of me or ask me any questions, you know, they can contact me at uh, www.survivorjane.com. And, um, again, thank you so much for inviting me on, Stephen. And we've been so glad to have you, and, and I'm sure – We'll want you back to cover some of those topics you mentioned. And I will cross out that expert, and I'm going to put, she be knowing stuff. How's that? <laughs> I make up a lot of stuff as I go. How about that? <laughs> yeah, and you do know a lot of good things. And, and I really, again, would suggest that people check out your books because uh, they're just crammed full of useful, valuable information that, can make your life a little bit better. Did I say a little bit? No, make your life a whole lot better. Wow, it's thank you very what, much. That's kind. What one little one little thing can do, you know, when I read Paul Pretzel's books on uh, backpacking, he was kind of the grand guru backpacking. When he mentioned uh, if you don't want to get calluses and blisters on your feet, wear two pairs of socks. And I'm like, wow, what a revelation. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I never well, there you go. <laughs> you but know, you know, now I'm trial by error stuff, though. You know, I've got two yep. pairs of socks. Yep. So, it's the little things, and sometimes you have to go through a trial by fire to learn them, and that's what I'm here for. I, I'm hoping that people don't have to do that, Stephen, so that I can say, you know, I did that, and this is what happened. You know, that's that's my mission is to teach people so they don't have to go through the ugliness necessarily. Um, but then sometimes it, it made me who I am, too. 
Right. And, you know, ultimately being a, a prepper is really a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. You know, we'll look forward to having you back again really soon. You stay safe out there on your mountain. I will. And thank you again, and thank you to the team of Prepper to Prepper.